Hey, good morning, Resonate. Good morning. It is great. It's great to be together this morning. You know, when, uh, when Dylan was praying, I just got the overwhelming sense to tell you, you're loved. Do you know you're loved this morning? Isn't it amazing that God has provided a place for us to worship him? Uh, a place for MCs to exist? A place to come together and just enjoy one another, whether you're here in Fremont or in Oakland or Hayward or online. Like God loves us. He loves to take care of our people. I hope you sense that love from him this morning. You know, uh, last week, our pastor started our sermon series by pitching the vision again that God's given us for the 1% of the Bay Area. You know, he says there's 8 million people in the Bay Area. We think about 10% know Jesus. So that's 800,000. And there's 7.2 million people that don't know Jesus. And in our lifetime, we'd love to see 1% of those people come to know Jesus. And so we're on mission as a church together. And you know, what was exciting was last week was the very first week that we launched our new campus in Oakland. Yeah, so thankful, so thankful. And uh, I, I just want you to know, I had the privilege of being in Oakland last week when you guys were so rowdy and rambunctious and just yelling like crazy and encouraging. And not only was that happening here, but that was happening in Hayward as well. And so we're just overwhelmed in Oakland and just joyful that we're not many churches separated by miles, but we're one church coming together. And just so ex excited about that. And I, I just want to say, too, thank you for the people who drove up to Oakland last week. Uh, those who, of you from Hayward who went over to Oakland and welcomed them into the body of Resonate and just loved them. And thank you, Oakland, for all the work you did to get ready for more people showing up and living on mission together with, with us in the city of Oakland. It was such an exciting week. And what I want to do is just invite you on January 28th, there is an interest meeting. And so we've had what we might call our soft launch of Oakland now, but Easter Sunday, March 31st is going to be our launch to the community and getting the word out to everybody. And we would love to build teams out there, core groups that would serve that community, would live on mission there. And I know God is calling some of you from Fremont, from Hayward, from online to come and join what God is doing in Oakland. And if that's you, if you even have like an inkling of an idea that God wants you to there, then January 28th, uh, both Pastor Ryan and Pastor Christopher, who is our campus pastor in Oakland, will be there from two to four in the afternoon, just laying out the vision and inviting you to be involved in that. And so I, I would just encourage you, put that on your calendar and say, yeah, even if it's just to go to find out what's going on so you can pray for that campus. That would be a worthwhile use of that afternoon. So can I just encourage you, that interest meeting on January 28th, get signed up for it, put it on your calendar. It's gonna be a great, a great time. Okay, so we are in the second week of our series called Heal Our Land. And our desire in this series is really revival. It's revival across the Bay Area. It is that 1%. And it's the idea of awakening and reawakening. It's the idea that believers would be awakened, that my heart would be awakened as a believer in Christ. The nominal believers, people who are kind of on the fringe 
uh, one foot out, one foot in, would be awakened to see the glory and the grace of God and be drawn in. And then people who don't know yet, know Jesus yet, would be awakened to the gospel. And now, here's a question for you. Have you ever stopped to consider that you cannot make a seed grow? You know, I, I actually, uh, I was in the Central Valley for a long time, and obviously the Central Valley has a big farming community. And, you know, if you drive over there, which I'm sure many of you have done to go to Yosemite or different places, you drive through these large field, these large ag fields, and the reality is when you put a seed in the ground and grow it into a tree or grow it into a plant, you, you cannot make that plant grow. You cannot hold a seed in your hand and say, grow, right? You, you can't. All you can do is create an environment that is conducive to that seed growing. And sure enough, there's millions, billions of dollars that are put into ag in the Central Valley trying to figure out how to make those seeds and those trees grow to make productive um, vegetables and nuts and fruits off of those trees. And you can change like the water, you can change the sunlight, you can take away the toxic soil, you can add certain types of fertilizer to it, you can protect it from bugs, but that's all you can do. At the end of the day, the seed has to determine if it's gonna grow or not. Now, in the same way that you cannot make a seed grow, do you realize that we cannot make revival happen? We can't. Revival only comes when God chooses to pour out his Holy Spirit upon us. That's the only time it comes, is when God chooses. But here's what we see in the Bible, and more specifically in our text this morning, is that God reveals how we can create the environment in which God can bring revival. That's our part in this equation. And so our text is 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, if you want to turn there with me. And there's four parts in this verse to setting up an environment conducive to revival. They're humbling ourselves, praying, seeking God's face, and turning from our wicked ways. And we're going to spend the entire month of January taking one of those at a time, looking at them and seeing what God would have us do. So here's the question I'd love for you to consider this morning. If God's shown us how to create an environment for revival, are you all in? Are you all in this morning? Are you hungry to see your own heart awakened? I'm hungry for that. Are you, are you hungry to see more people awakened in the Bay Area? Are you hungry to see the 1% come to know him? Do you want to tell your grandkids and future generations of the amazing stories of what God did in this time. I do. I, I want nothing more than to be on my deathbed and say, can I tell you what God did? It was way beyond our control. He poured out his Holy Spirit. And you know what else I would love to see happen? This is a really selfish one, but I, I'm all in for this one. Every time I go to different parts of the country and I say I'm a pastor in the Bay Area of California, they, they're like, how do you live there? That liberal, satanic place that's, you know, like we're hoping the earthquake will just drop it off into the ocean because there's, have you, have you heard that? How can you be a Christian in the Bay Area? And I, 
And I just want to tell them about resonate, tell them about you guys and say, there's a faithful remnant here of believers who love Jesus. But I would love nothing more than to be able to go back and tell them revival started in the Bay Area. Revival started in Oakland. Revival started in Hayward. Revival started in Fremont. And for the rest of the country to go, what? That is absolutely incredible. Yeah, that's what our God does. And here's what I think. If revival started here, I think it would awaken the rest of the country. They'd all be so shocked. If God can move there, he can move anywhere. Are you, are you hungry for that? That's, man, I, I would love nothing more than to tell my great-grandchildren, look how God moved. So let's stand together and let's read our text as we think about how to create an environment conducive for revival to come. Second Chronicles 7, verse 14, it says this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Thanks be to God for his word. And you may be seated. I'm going to pause here for a second because I want to tell you something about the Oakland campus. They are in this beautiful old school building. It's an elementary school is where they meet. And they have wooden chairs that just go slap, 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 slap. And so when they're all sitting down, if I start talking right away, they're going to miss, you know, 30 seconds of what's happening. So we love, we love you, Oakland. That's for sure. Yeah. So as we look at this text, 2 Chronicles 7.14, I first want you to see the context of this text and as you read it through. Now, here, here's, here's where it starts. God loves to be with his people. Do you know he loves to be with you? I mean, that's what the whole Christmas season was about, was Jesus coming to earth. Not us trying to get to him, but him coming to be with us. And as you look through scripture, you can see lots of examples of this. Adam and Eve, God walking in the garden with them. As the Israelites as they start out across the desert, God says, hey, I want you to build a place that I can dwell with you. And they called it the tabernacle. It was a tent. And they would pack it up as they were moving. And then when they would unpack it and set it up, God's presence would descend on that place. And they would know the presence of the Lord amongst them. And then as we keep moving on and they move into the promised land, we see God's presence. He loves to be with his people because he tells them, I want you to build a permanent dwelling place for me. It's called the temple. And David begins to bring, King David, he brings all of these uh, building materials together. He started his own Home Depot and he brings all of these building materials together. But God says to him, you can't build the temple. I want your son Solomon to do it. And so what this, the book of Second Chronicles is all about is Solomon is building the temple. And by the time we get to chapter 7, he has built the temple. He has gathered, gathered all the furnishings that are supposed to be inside the temple. And now they are dedicating it in the first, in the first verses of chapter 7. And so they, they dedicate it. And this is their best day ever because as they dedicate it, the glory of the Lord 
comes down on this place and the temple is filled with God's glory and his presence is amongst them. And they recognized it and they celebrated like crazy. And you can imagine all of the other people groups around Israel looking at them and these other people groups might look in and they would say, uh, hey, we have armies, we have money, we have doctors and scientists, we have educators, we have all of these things. Israel, what do you have? And Israel would have just responded, oh, we have the very presence of the sovereign God who created all those things that you're putting your hope in. We have the one who is over it all. And you can imagine the confidence, the security, because they knew that God's presence was among them. And so in verses three through nine, then we see that they had a big celebration. They began to praise God because of his presence there. And they had a, they had a party that lasted seven days. Can you imagine? I've never, ever been to a party that lasted seven days. I would love to go to a party that lasted seven days. I mean, I think I've been to a party that lasted like seven hours, maybe. But a seven, have you ever been to a seven-day party? This is, this is what the presence of God was like amongst them, that they just couldn't stop partying. And then finally, in verse 10, Solomon, the king, he sends them home. And it says they, they had joyful and glad hearts for God's goodness. They just, they enjoyed his presence. And so what happens next? Well, this is where really our text in verse 14 picks up because God begins to speak to Solomon in a dream. And this is the beauty here is that God knows that our hearts are fickle. And he knows that that great day of his glory and his presence among us will actually fade and they will forget God. They will get distracted. And God knows that when they forget him and the glory fades, what they will do is forget his commands, forget his instructions, and they will think our ways are better than God's ways. They will think they know best. They will think they know how to spend their time, their money, what their priorities should be, who they should marry, where they should work who they can trust and who they can't trust. It's, it's actually the opposite of Proverbs 3, 5. Do you remember three, Proverbs 3, 5? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And their version of it would have gone something like this. We forgot God and we're trusting in ourselves with all our heart and we're leaning on our own understanding because the glory is faded and the consequences are devastating, not just personally, but corporately. But God because of his nature, because of his loving kindness, because of his mercy and the fact that he loves to be with his people, he always provides a way of redemption. And so knowing the fickleness of the human heart, here's what God says to Solomon. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive them and heal their land. He tells them, hey, if you want to be revived, if you want to be awakened, if you want reawakening to happen in your midst, here's how to create the environment conducive to seeing it happen. Just like the seed growing. Humble yourselves, pray, seek my face, turn from your wicked ways. It's a pathway to revival. It's what the people could do to garner God's response. 
But here's the thing, the chapter doesn't stop there. The chapter actually continues and the remainder of it is God telling Solomon what will happen if they don't do these things. If they don't humble themselves, if they don't stop and pray, if they don't seek his face, if they don't create this environment conducive to revival. In verse 19, 20, he says this, if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you from my land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name, the temple, and I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. God's saying, if you forget me, if you lean on your own understanding, then I will cast you out. Now, what is that? Is that God just being mean? What is, what is going on here? Is God just that selfish and that much of a narcissist that he's like, if you don't worship me, I will cast you out. And here's the reality. Uh, uh, it's not God being a narcissist. It's actually God showing grace. Because here's what Paul tells us in the book of Romans, verse 323, for the wages of sin is death. When we take our hearts and our minds off of God and put them on ourselves, there will always be death that results from that. It might be spiritual, it might be emotional, it might be social, it might be mental, and it might be physical, but there will always be death when we do things our own way instead of God's ways. And so what kind of looks like abandonment in this chapter is actually tough love in action because what God's saying is, I'm gonna speed up the consequences of the wages of your sin so that you can really feel the weight of it so that you will turn back to me sooner. It's almost like when you're disciplining your children and you let reality be the discipline. I, I was so thankful when we got to the teenage years with our children and our kids did the dumbest things and I could let reality be the discipline for that. And I would say, man, it, it stinks to be you right now, doesn't it? Like that must be really hard. And in a sense, that's what God's doing is he's speeding up the consequences so that he can say, man, I, I'm drawing your heart back to me. It's my kindness that actually leads you to repentance. And sure enough, if you continue on in the book of Second Chronicles, you will see king after king after king of the ones who forgot God and it went really badly for Israel and the ones who loved God like Uriah, like Josiah and it went really well for Israel. God came and he healed their land. When they forsook God, everyone paid but when they humbled themselves, when they prayed, when they sought God's face, when they turned from their wicked ways, he forgave and he healed their land. And I, I, I love this text. It is very sobering, but it's joyful because what God is doing here is providing a way back. Oh, are you hungry for that, church? Do you see the brokenness in our society are you hungry for this? How does this text work itself out in our life? Well, we know God's revealed himself to us. He's shown himself to us. 
Um, even some of the foundations of our country reveal that. In God, we trust on our money. And we recognize his power. We recognize his work of redemption. And for some of us who have come to know Jesus, man, we see his Holy Spirit at work in us. We realize that nothing can separate us. There's no condemnation. We know that he works all things according to his purpose. Even when you're flat broke, he's doing it for a reason. Even when you make money, he's doing it for a reason. And just like the Israelites, because we have God's presence with us, we have great confidence, we have great security, we have great acceptance. It's, it's almost like that mountaintop experience. That's what they're going through at the beginning of Second Chronicles 7, where you go away to a camp or a conference. Some of you came back from our men's retreat in October, and you just, you knew you had met with the Lord. And God's presence, and you... And you just had a joyful heart. I heard testimony after testimony of what God had done and your excitement. And as you came back off that camp experience, that mountaintop experience, you, you were like, I live to obey God. It's his will, not my will. And you, for the few weeks right after that retreat, you were like, I'm showing up to the service 10 minutes early. I'm going to show up before they shut down the donut line. This is going to be amazing. And you were here early. And you, you couldn't wait for MC Expo because you were going to join an MC. This was, this, was your, this was it. Like, I can't wait to be with other Christians who want to pray for their one and talk about the goodness of God. And I can't wait to give. I'm so thankful that our church is on mission together. And you were you're thinking, I'm going to buy a cheaper car. I'm going to buy a cheaper house. I'm going to start buying my clothes at Walmart so I can give more. I'm, I'm all in. And you can't wait to tell people. Monday morning, like most people are like, ah, I hate Monday mornings, but not you. You were like, I can't wait to go to my job and meet people because I know that God's put me with other people so that I can declare his goodness to them. And I'm going to find out what they did this weekend. I'm going to pray for them. And then I hope I get to tell them what I did this weekend because I want, to, I want them to know Jesus. But then what happens? The glory fades. And surely but, slowly but surely, the fire that burns so brightly begins to diminish. And before we know it, what happens? Our priorities begin to change. God becomes second or tenth. And we start trusting our own ways. We start trusting our own understanding. And we're intermittent with our time with God. And we justify not coming to church every week. Pastor Ryan's not preaching this week. Or we justify not going to be a part of an admissional community, it's inconvenient. And we start to give less and we start to question more. What is the church doing with our money anyway? What is the church doing with my money? It's subtle. And then we stop talking about Jesus because we have nothing to say about Jesus. And the consequences of this are massive. And I, think about this across our nation. Corporately, our government has completely forgotten about the instructions of God. And how has this played itself out? Our housing is broken. Our welfare system is a tragedy. And we're trying, it's trying. But there's corruption and scandal. Why? 
because we've forgotten God. And we started to say our way is the best way. It's pretty easy to see it nationwide. How about in our churches? Have you seen it? As churches, as pastors and leaders forget God's ways and they think, I know better how to interpret scripture. I know better how to be progressive in my thinking. And they begin to abandon the orthodox views. And they begin to say, no, it's, we're going to reinterpret this. Leaning on their own understandings, leaning on themselves instead of saying, no, this is, this is the word of God. Come to it with fear and trembling. And how about in our individual lives where we begin to take on our own understanding instead of seeking after the Lord, the, the distractions, the fading, and we're no longer seeking after him. And sure enough, the consequences around us are massive because our kids pay, our spouses pay, our roommates pay, our co-workers pay for the kind of selfishness that we begin to bleed out on everyone. And haven't we all been there? Maybe some of us are in that place right now. I think as a nation, we can see it. As many churches, we can see it. I mean, the, the word church hurt has become a norm. The word toxic church leadership has become a norm. Why? And if you're like me or like the Israelites, the glory fading, the getting distracted is not an issue of if. Really, it's a, it's a question of When? because I know how fickle my heart is. And in times like this, I, I know I need to find a way back. And we need to find a way back personally, in churches and corporately as a nation, really as a globe. We need revival. And here's, here's the beauty of what God's doing. God in his graciousness, he knows he knows the fickleness of our hearts and he is kind. He says, my mercies are new to you every morning. And this is why he gives us 2 Chronicles 7.14 for awakening, for reawakening, for revival. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Are, are you desiring a revival? Do you see the need for awakening? Even as I've been prepping this sermon, I see the need for awakening in my life. For God to stir me up. And I, I don't just see it individually, I see it corporately in our churches, in our church, in our churches, across churches across the whole Bay Area, and I see it across our nation. I'm hungry for this. And God says the first step, if you want revival, the first way to create an environment that's conducive to this is to humble yourself. Now what does it mean? What does it mean to humble ourselves? Can I tell you a story? In a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago, before there were cell phones and before there was GPS, there was a time when men and women everywhere had to use paper maps to get to places. 
And they were the most inconvenient things ever. I mean, I remember like trying to pull out these big maps. Do you know where we're going? Sometimes we had these things called atlases, which were pages of maps. And you never knew which the next page was. It never made any sense. This was, it was hard. I mean, these were back in the days when it snowed on the way to school and we walked uphill both ways. It was really difficult in these days. But in those days, sometimes when you were driving around because you had no GPS, no cell phone, sometimes you would just drive in circles trying to find the place that you needed to be. And, you know, other passengers in the car would lean over and be like, deja vu, I think we've been here three times before. And the passenger would inevitably lean over and say, maybe we should pull over to a convenience store or a gas station and we should get some help. And the person in the driver's seat, and I don't want to say men, but most of the time men would be like, there's no way we're stopping. I know exactly where we're going. I know. And they would drive around for hundreds of hours. This is why we have global warming now. Because they didn't stop and just humble themselves and say, you know what? I have no idea where we're at. <laughs> Matt wasn't very helpful. My memory's not very helpful. I've been trying on my own. This is not working. Yeah, let's pull into the gas station. Let's just stop by the side of the road. Maybe somebody can help us and just give us a direction. That's what humbling ourselves look like, looks like. And in our text, it simply means this, to pause and realize that you cannot lean on your own understanding or your methods, but you need someone else to help you. We're lost. We need help. We've been driving around in circles and we cannot fix this. And I just have to tell you, humbling yourself is not a complex idea from this text. It simply means acknowledging in your heart, I can't, I've tried to fix it. I've tried all these different ways. It isn't working. I don't know. I've relied on my own thinking. It's just getting worse. I need help. And here's, here's, the, here's the hard part of humility. It is not trying to do something different. It is not changing your course. Because if you did try to do something different at that point, you would actually be an admission that you are not being humble because you are still thinking, oh, I'm humble, so therefore I'm going to do this. No, humility is just the simply rolling down your window and saying, I can't. I can't do this. And humbling ourselves before God is simply saying, my way is not working, and I'm turning to you. That's what humility is. Now, I was thinking, that sounds so easy, doesn't it? All, you mean all I need to do is just stop? And yet, can I just tell you, I think this is probably the hardest part of this equation. Just to be still and go, everything that I've done up to this point is not helping. God, I just want to be quiet before you. God, would you have your way? 
All right, well, those three seconds were awkward silence. Let's get back on with it. Come on, we've got stuff to do. I got 13 minutes and 34 seconds left in this sermon. Come on. See, humility is it's so hard. But why, why is it so important to us? I think humbling ourselves is the prerequisite for anything God can do in and with our lives. Unless we're willing to stop and say, your way first, not my way. Unless we're willing to stop and say, what I've tried to do is not working. I need your way. God can't really work in us. And let me illustrate it like this. There's a, a couple that gets married. You know, they're just falling in love. They, they've just, they're overjoyed to be together. And so they go on, they get married. They go on their honeymoon you just seem together, you're like, hey, like, can we have a little less PDA, please? You guys are awkward, you know, but they're just like, love each other. This is just so, and they're celebrating. You never see them apart. It's great. But then as it begins to fade and they get distracted from each other, they have work to go to. They have financial responsibilities. Then kids come along and all of a sudden it fades, the glory fades. And all of a sudden they realize, you know what? We need to go see a counselor. Which if, if you're in that position, like that's a fantastic place to be. My wife and I have been in that position so many times in our marriage. And it's great to be able to stop and go see a counselor. But let me tell you, unless you stop before you go to a counselor and humble yourself, that counselor cannot help you at all. And I think so many of us have walked into a counseling scenario where we're kind of like, it's really his fault. It's really her fault. And unless she's willing to do this, or unless he's willing to do this, I'm not changing anything. And do you know what? The counselor has zero ability to work in your life if that's the way you show up. If you're just defensive and you're argumentative, there's, there's barely anything a counselor can do besides letting it get worse. Because until you have hit rock bottom, you know that idea of hitting rock bottom? Until you've hit that, where the idea is when you hit rock bottom, you're actually willing to say, I'm clueless. I've, I've tried every single thing. I, I've pulled out every tool out of my toolbox and nothing is working. Then a counselor says, you're ready. Let's begin. And how much more so, if that's true, if, if a couple does not humble themselves completely, how much more so if we're talking about revival and God doing a work amongst us? See, if, if we want revival to come across the Bay Area, it doesn't take a whole lot of intellect to know that it's broken, that things aren't working here, right? I think you can drive around Fremont, you can drive around Hayward, you can drive around Oakland, you can drive around any community in the Bay Area and you can see the brokenness. It doesn't take much intellect to see that, but it does take a lot to humble ourselves and admit that it's not just others that are the cause of the problem, but it's us. And how many times have we said, we're ready to change God and then immediately go back to our own understandings. If, if we want 
to see change, if we want to see revival, humility is the prerequisite. But if we're willing to ad- admit it, if, if we're willing to admit that we need to be humbled, that we need humility, why is it so much more difficult than we imagine? Why, why is it so difficult to, to humble yourself? Let, let's face it. Most of us think that our opinions are best. Most of us think that, you, that we see it more clearly than anybody else. One of my um, beautiful daughters brought me a t-shirt that brought this point home to me because she knows my attitude. And, and the t-shirt said on it, no, you're right. Let's do it the dumbest way possible because it's easiest for you. And she was like, dad, this is kind of how you show up in our home. Praise God for children, right? (laughs) And, you know, my immediate response was, well, yeah, that's because I'm right. (laughs) It's because I do see it more clearly. I can cut to the chase faster than all of you in this. And do you realize how arrogant that is? You know, I've been married for 32 years now. I think the last five years of my marriage has been some of the hardest because I'm realizing how opinionated I am, how my preference have won over the last 30 years, and how my wife deserves better, and how I need to be humbled for that to happen. Oh, God is at work in breaking me, and it has been hard to hang in there but he's at work. And I began to realize the nature of my selfishness and the need for humility in my life. And as I think about that, I think, well, God, what is the true motivation for humility? Like what's the only thing that won't cause me to give up? When we're sitting there quietly and just going like, my way is not working, we need help outside of ourselves. What's, what's the only motivation that would work? And as we look back to the Israelites, you know the only motivation that worked for them was remembering the glory of God. Was remembering the glory of God because they, they, would, have, they would have said, remember the days of the temple when God's presence filled that place? Do you remember the joy that we had? Do you remember that seven-day celebration? Remember the promises of God and how he fulfilled those? In, in 2 Chronicles seven sixteen, he says, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. God's presence was amongst us, and they were hungry for that. And the Israelites, as they considered this, they would have looked, and they would have, they would have said, your mercy has never failed us, God. No matter how far we've walked away from you, you've always brought us back. They would have said, Man, when we were young, we thought we decided to follow Jesus. But as we're getting older, we're realizing, ah, no, he had his hook into me the entire time. That's his loving kindness towards us. And he would say, all my days have been held in your hands. And they would look back and they would say, remember Egypt? Remember the Philistines? Remember the time that we had no water in the desert? Remember the times that he healed us, that he provided And they would say, in the darkest night, you have been close like no other. Remember that pillar of fire? Remember the Holy Spirit leading us through the desert? 
Remember the direction he gave us when we were looking at that house, looking at that job? Remember what he did? And they would say, your goodness has been running after us, Lord. God, you've been so good to us. You've never let us go. And as they remembered that, as they remembered God's goodness, they were able to say, I need to humble myself. I need to say no to my own understandings and yes to what God is doing. And they knew that if they lived in obedience, what they were doing was setting up a environment conducive to revival, conducive to him bringing forgiveness and healing the land. So how about us? What's God saying to you this morning? Can you see how the glory of God has faded in our nation? In our communities, wherever you live? I mean, we're, we're in an election year. You're going to see it more clearly than probably any other year. The brokenness and the arguing and the backfighting. And you're going to be tempted to either say, well, if we just had a Republican, if we just had a Democrat, if we just had an independent, maybe you'd be tempted to say, if we just had no one, sometimes that seems like a better option. But even that is not humility. That's you taking your own way. How about if we just stop and say, God, this ain't working. We've tried. How about churches? How about resonate? God, we want to see your glory poured out across the Bay Area. We're trying to do a lot of things, but we just want to stop and humble ourselves before you. How about personally? You see the weight of brokenness in your life? Do you feel the meaningless? Do you feel the discouragement? Do you feel the dissatisfaction? Are you antsy for something more? And if, that's, if that describes you, it's time to stop and just humble yourself. You know, we're not the first one to ever do this because Paul tells us in Philippians that our Savior humbled himself. And I, and I can remember reading through that passage and basically it's Jesus who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords in human form. And it says he emptied himself. So there's this idea that he's looking at the cross and maybe for a faint second in his humanness, he looks at it and he's like, death? That seems kind of permanent. Like, what are you doing here, God? And yet he says, not my understanding, but your understanding, Lord. And he puts away himself and he humbles himself and he trusts the sovereignty of God to bring about healing. And in his humility, the promises of God change our lives for all eternity. In him, we are healed. Do you desire revival today? Can I just tell you the one part in this passage that we skipped over was that if my people who were called by my name, do you realize that this is not, this is not a message for 
the government. This is not a message for those who are in control of other churches. This isn't a message for some other group of people that we'd say, if they would just change, that would be great. No, he says this, if my people who are called by my name, that's us resonate. He's calling us to humble ourselves before him, to stop and say, I've tried it all. I've been driving around in circles for hours and hours, and I'm just gonna stop, roll down the window of my life and say, I need directions. I need you, Lord. Mm -hmm. Let's pray. God, we just wanna say thank you for speaking to us this morning. And I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters. God, would you, would you teach us what it means to be humble? For the joy set before us, for the things that you really have for us, for you healing our land, would you do this work? in us, God, so that we could have life and have it abundantly, that we could truly live. And I ask, ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's give God praise, resonate. Would you grab your communion elements? You know, as, as the Israelites look back and they could see God's glory in the temple and that would have motivated them to say, I, we want his presence among us. We want, we want to know his goodness. We get to look back every week here at Resonate to God's goodness because we're celebrating with this cracker, we're celebrating Jesus giving his life for us, his body broken for us. And with this juice cup, we're saying, this represents the blood of Jesus. He gave his life for us. And he says, greater, has no, great, greater love has no one than this than he laid down his life for his friends. This is the very presence of God amongst us. And so if, you're, if you need motivation for being humble, for stopping and saying, my will is not working, your will be done, Lord. You don't need to look any further than to the cross of Christ and remember what he has done for us. So can we just stop this morning? Can you take this cracker and just celebrate his love for you? And can we just take this cup and remember his kindness to us? And could we just pause for a moment and just ask God, speak to us, humble us.